Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast of 2021. I'm your host, James Wong. I'm Dave Rome. I'm Caleb Fritz. And I'm Zach Edwards. How's everyone's holiday break? Meh. Red bikes. Meh. Zach went to California. Yeah. Drove to California. Road bikes with Ruth. Oh, my. That sounds really fun, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Went skiing. Uh, That's it. I think I mainly sat around my house and did as little as possible. Yeah. Not a whole lot going on. Uh, We got a new website. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Website. We did get a new website. Yeah, uh, uh, it was kind of it was kind of broken for a bit, but it's fixed now. Ish. Well, mostly, it's mostly, mostly fixed. fixed. It's, it's mostly fixed. it's fixed as far as the like end reader user is probably concerned for the most part. Uh, but yeah, we're super excited about it. Looks great. I love it. Be easier to find tech stuff now. I kind of liken it to a Tesla right now. Like it, it's you know very new and flashy looking right now. It's like it's got a whole bunch of really cool features and it generally works very well and. My hope is that it's not like an actual Tesla where the battery could explode at any moment. So. <laughs> Entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. The end user doesn't need we to know no about all the bugs lying within. So we'll see. <laughs> anyway, Zach, I just want to say that it's good to have you back. One of the last times that we went without you, we heard that you were stuck in a giant vat of tubular glue. So I'm glad to hear that Ruth was able to oh, extract yeah. you successfully. Although yeah, you do I smell survived. a little bit like, yeah, although you do smell good. a little bit like solvent still. So hopefully that goes away soon. Yeah, good to be back. Uh-huh. We're just high as a kite in here right now. Ah, uh, yes. Everywhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> just open jars of tubular glue <laughs> scattered around. <laughs> anyway, we have an outstanding show in store for you to kick off the new year. And without further ado, let's get into the news. First and foremost, let's talk about Bontrager's WaveCell helmet technology. So back when this was introduced early last year, the general sentiment was that this stuff was maybe a little too good to be true. And now... A certain individual in New York State apparently feels the same way so strongly that he's actually suing Trek for $5 million US for false advertising and is hoping that enough people will join him to earn class action status. Now, if you take Virginia Tech's helmet testing as a reliable, independent third-party source of data, then yeah, it seems kind of true that WaveCell doesn't seem to be the safety revolution that Bontrager claimed it to be. And in fact, at least according to Virginia Tech's testing, WaveCell doesn't even seem to score better on average than Bontrager's non-WaveCell helmets. So I have a bunch of mixed feelings on this. What do you guys think? I mean, it it underscores the danger of helmet manufacturers, brands, making any sort of, of real claim, right? Like, it, it, you mentioned this in the, in the story that you wrote about this, James. It's like, we sort of wondered out loud, although we know the answer, uh, why helmet brands they're often really tepid in their marketing, right? They're really kind of, they don't say a whole lot. They don't make any real, real big claims. They pretty much stick to like, Hey, it's light and it's maybe aerodynamic and it's cool. And I don't really talk about safety all that much. And this is why, because if you do talk about safety, then someone tries to sue you for talking too much about safety. Uh, I got yelled at from previous podcasts for talking about people that, sue other people for things that maybe don't need to be sued over this kind of falls in that category for me like i don't know i guess if you bought it if you bought it thinking that you're buying the most safe helmet of all time okay i guess you could be a little bit annoyed by that but at the same time like we don't we still don't really know virginia tech is a good it's good testing but it's you know 
it's just one type of test, right? And we, we still don't have like a clear picture of what actually fully makes a super safe helmet because it, a lot of it just depends on how you crash too. So yeah, I, I, I'm sort of just philosophically opposed to suing companies when when they make claims that are like not even that outlandish. Uh, but at the same time, it I seems understand. odd to sue and it's not like you're just suing because you don't think their advertising is proper. It's like not, you're not suing because you crashed and you still got a concussion with this new helmet. Like that would maybe make more sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe that's the case with this particular incident. He's no. just like, grumpy. for me, I mean the Bontrager and Trek, um, completely overhyped this entire campaign from before they even launched the product. You know, they, they, they really did push the message that this was a game changing product. Um, at one point they were claiming it was the biggest tech innovation to cycling in 30 years. Uh, so I kind of under- I that understand story. why there are some people angry enough that they are trying to take perhaps advantage of the situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it falls back on the fact that I, I truly believe that Trek went way too hard on the marketing side of this product. Uh, you know, they could have just released it and said, this is our answer to safety, you know, to helmet safety. Um, we believe this is safer than existing products. But instead they came out and they, they made some very outlandish claims that it was, what was it, 38 times safer or whatever it was. 48, 48, 48. times. I think, I think it was 48 times less, li- yeah. less likely to result in a, in a traumatic clothed yeah. head injury or something like that. Yeah. And, and claims like that, they were, they were never going to get out of that without some pushback from their competitors and from others out there so yeah i think this just comes back to a a blunted marketing campaign the ironic thing to me is for how much hype there was for this helmet and how game-changing it was none of their teams ride that they're all in the older well yeah because i mean that's that's kind of the issue here is well one of the issues is you know even if this helmet was as good as claimed in terms of protecting their head i mean bontrager still from from my experience hasn't done enough on the other more traditional aspects of helmet performance you know namely being you know ventilation and and just overall comfort to to prompt people to to use it at that level of the sport certainly i mean you know yes pros crash all the time that that's kind of a given and you know they do deal with a lot of head injuries but by and large they're concerned with the 99.9 percent of the time when they are actually upright and not slamming their head into the ground when they are more concerned about a helmet being comfortable to wear and not stifling in hot weather and you know not slowing them down like a parachute so you know in that respect von trigger still has a lot of work to do with these helmets i feel like and the fact that they maybe don't provide you know, even if they are a little bit better, they don't seem to be they don't seem to be providing you know that huge dramatic improvement in concussion protection that they claim to be. So you know, given all that, it's not entirely surprising to me that these things maybe haven't gone awesome. I mean, my my guess is that they got a pretty big splash of, of market share, I guess, when this first came out because you know the, again, Dave, like you said, there's a lot of hype around it. But long term, I don't know if that's gonna if that's going to hold up just because you know it you know the helmets in my experience certainly could be better i mean like you said zach i mean even when you know when when the company's own team which they own they're not just a title sponsor it's their team when they can't even get their own riders to use the things then that doesn't speak very well yeah 
Um, Overhyped. Massive yeah, but- marketing. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I still feel like anybody who's like sort of fully bought into the, some of those safety claims, they were pretty questionable. I mean, like in the, in the first story that we like, I remember we wrote a story about the, the biggest, we, we, we wrote a story guessing what the biggest uh, innovation in 30 years was when they, when they teased that little bit. The crow we, that no, I ate of- afterwards was very tasty. <laughs> but we, no, we yeah we weren't guessing helmets because that's just sort of an absurd thing uh and then when the helmet first came out we you know james you i believe you've reviewed it right it was a big letdown yeah it was, it was a bit of a letdown and we, we were very clear with the audience on that front uh so yeah I, I could totally see why if you bought that thing in the first week that it came out with all these claims before you had you know sort of reviews from a reputable out, reputable outlets like ourselves I can see why you'd be pissed. Yeah, uh, but in in Bond Traeger's af- uh, defense, on most of their products bought aftermarket, they have a thirty day money back guarantee. Uh, and I say this because I know quite a few people that bought a wave sail helmet in Australia, rode it on a hot day, and then took it back for their money back. Yeah, I mean, you know, the product doesn't live up, right? Yeah. I like I said, philosophically, I don't tend to believe that like the legal system is always the best solution to these things in this case maybe it is maybe in this case maybe there's enough people that bought this thing that like are just did not live up to what it was supposed to be that there's enough of a of a reason to take this thing to court i don't really know i don't know how many people bought it i don't have those stats but i can see why they'd be pissed yeah but like i said i mean i do have some mixed feelings about this mainly because you know, the primary purpose of a bicycle helmet is to protect protect your head and your brain and whatnot. And, you know, the, the fact that companies are so averse to making claims regarding safety is a bummer because, you know, out of fear of being sued, they basically are withholding information that a lot of customers would like to know about. I mean, I guess it's why we rely now on third-party testers like Virginia Tech and sort of just take their results as gospel essentially because we don't have any other good reliable sorts of information. So in light of that, it's just kind of a bummer that this sort of threat of litigation does prevent companies, yes, on the one hand from making kind of outlandish claims, but it also, you know, maybe providing useful information. information. Yeah. So that's a bummer. And I guess in the meantime, we'll see how this goes. I mean, personally, it doesn't really seem like this lawsuit is really going to get very far. I mean, as as Trek pointed out, um, you know, the, the person didn't even isn't even claiming an injury. Doesn't even seem to have crashed or have gotten hurt while wearing one of these helmets. So who knows what's going to happen with this? So we'll see. All right. So we will keep an eye on what happens with this. But again, like I said, I suspect what is going to end up happening with this is basically nothing. Um, Anyway, moving on, given the new reality of cycling, it wouldn't be a Nerd Alert podcast without at least some discussion of riding indoors, which brings us to our next bit of tech news. So Zwift has obviously been the hugely dominant platform of choice for most people riding inside these days. But for as much money and development resources as the company has behind it, there's obviously still room for some improvement. Enough, in fact, for one intrepid individual with zero prior coding experience to create a third-party app called Zwift Hub that fills in a lot of the gaps that Zwift leaves behind. And to bring us up to speed on what Zwift Hub is all about, we have a very special guest for this segment of Nerd Alert, our new tech writer all the way from Northern Ireland, Ronan McLaughlin, otherwise known as Woody from Toy Story, as we all realize. <laughs> Um, cool. So Ronan, Zwift Hub, yeah, I read the article on the site as we all did, hopefully, 
Uh, it sounds pretty cool, but what exactly is this thing? So yeah, it's uh, basically a way for Zwifters to better keep track of the their achievements as they as they sort of clock them off on Zwift. So over the sort of Christmas holidays there, I got back into into riding on Zwift. The weather here wasn't so great, so I was sort of forced into it. But uh, I refound my obsession with ticking off achievements on Zwift and refound my frustration with the way that you track said achievements. And that uh, after I completed a ride or you know uh, completed a new route, after you've left the, the actual game itself, you have to go back in through the whole process of logging on, through the process of pairing up your sensors, choosing a route, and then finally getting into the game ready for a ride, just so that you can check what achievements you've just checked, ticked off. And then you sort of have to memorize it, or as I was doing, start taking pictures with your phone as to which badges you've achieved and which you haven't, until I found Zwift Hub. Uh, and basically that's a much easier way of, of keeping track of those achievements as you as you take them off. And it sounds like it also kind of, you know, takes away some of the complexity of the user interface in general when you get started, right? Yeah, so uh, it, it sort of just, there is a bit of work involved when you first register with Zwift Hub and that you sort of have to manually input all the achievements that you've had so far and all the all the uh, routes that you've ticked off so far. So the, the earlier somebody finds Zwift Hub and their Zwifting experience, the better really, because you'll have less to manually input. But from, but from then on, it's just a case of, you know, as you complete a route or as you complete a new achievement, you can just pop onto your Zwift Hub account and tick it off that you've 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 completed that, that badge or achieved that badge and really I, I personally find that you know as I was trying to tick off more and more of these badges over the holidays there that I was using Zwift Hub on a daily basis anyway. So it wasn't a case of having to, you know, after I finished my Zwift ride, go and log on to a third party app just to update my achievements. It was kind of a natural thing in that I, I was already there because I was already on Zwift and I'd, you know, been using Zwift Hub to to choose a ride for that day, so yeah, it was. Um, it, it, it's just a much more, much more straightforward way of of keeping track of those achievements. Uh, I did actually have a question, so you're gonna have to excuse this one because I'm kind of a kind of kind of a Zwift noob uh, in terms of like badges and routes and things like that. Like I don't really pay attention to any of that at the moment. I just sort of hop on and do it every once in a while. Like how many of these things are there? How many, like if you were going to try to check off every single route on Zwift, which it sounds like if you're going to use Zwift hub, that's kind of what you're, you probably want to do. Like how, what, how long would that take? Uh, how long it would take? I can't actually answer, but, uh, off the top of my head, there's probably, you know, all together, including achievements and, and, and routes or routes to take off, uh, there's probably up to, I think, about 140 at this stage. Uh, and if I'm right in, right in thinking, there's about 70 of those that are that are routes, roughly speaking. Um, but yeah, like the, the achievements and the badges aspect of it probably isn't for everybody. It's, you know, just a sort of a challenge that I set for myself to get me on Zwift every day. Um, but there's still a sort of benefit in using Zwift Hub in that the the quicker you can tick off those achievements and those badges, the more you'll progress in the sort of gamification aspect of Zwift and unlock more routes and unlock 
different bikes and you know basically build up those uh, sweat droplets that you can use to buy to buy other equipment and accessories and that so even for someone who's not particularly interested in, in achieving all the badges it's still pretty useful and you know even more so than that is the ability to actually better understand what sort of route you're getting into when you're when you're in that route selection part of Zwift at the start and that's you know quite often beforehand I would have just simply clicked right and and set off on whatever course Zwift happened to pop me into but using Zwift Hub you can you can better understand you know which what the parkour is like for a, for a particular route what the climbs are like if it's flat if it's you know what what distance it is and and even further to that, you can um, you can sort of have it going in the background while you're on Zwift, and you know you can you can check as you make your way through a route what's coming up next. And the best example I found of it was that for anybody who knows the reverse KOM or the epic KOM reverse, or I can't remember the name exactly, but something like that. Uh, you can climb the whole way up that think you're about to set a new personal record or whatever on the on the reverse KOM only to be sidetracked right and up the radio tower climb which is probably the most horrible climb on Zwift um, so yeah just to know that that's about to happen and be able to avoid it is probably uh, makes having a Zwift Hub account worthwhile on its own. Zwift Hub for certainly for people who use Zwift a lot I mean it, it, it sounds pretty cool um, I will admit I have not used it yet but the thing that really came to me when I was thinking about this was, you know, what does it say about Zwift, you know, given all the money, given all the resources that they have, given how dominant a position they have in this in this segment of the market? I mean, what does it say that there is room for something like Zwift Hub to even exist? Yeah, that's I suppose that's the, the big question here. And that, you know, I, I have no doubt that Zwift are well aware of the complexity of, of just trying to track your achievements and and how important that is to some of their users so you know why this hasn't just been rolled into the companion app I'm not quite sure or why it's not on even just on you know the Zwift.com website rather than being sort of buried within the game and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure either but uh, you know the, and speaking to the developer of this web app uh, Tobias Feeney it might be poorly pronouncing his surname but it looks like Feeney to me um Tobias said that you know he he has reached out to Zwift and he's attempted to sort of work with with Zwift and you know in helping to integrate these uh this, this feature that he's created and you know and trying to roll more features into his app as well but he says there's been you know basically zero uh communication coming in the opposite direction he, he has had conversations with Zwift but there's you know there's no support from from Zwift and in, in the in the work that he's doing and I suppose the, the the big concern for him and that is if you know if he pours much more time into furthering the features on this web app it could just be you know observed by Zwift releasing some new uh, up, update and you know basically overnight and, and wiping out the requirement for his app yeah, we've seen similar with Strava in the past where, you know, a lot of uh, third-party apps appear to provide features that are really useful. Um, and, you know, in some cases, Strava has either decided to block them out or, or just integrate similar features themselves. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's certainly, you know, not the first Strava's time. Strava's also hired some of things. those people. Strava hired, uh, what's the guy's name? Paul Mock, I believe. 
Paul, F, he, 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 yeah, he, he was uh, basically a, like a sort of a third-party Strava developer guy and got hired up by Strava to implement some of that stuff internally, which, you know, maybe that's a potential avenue forward for for this guy as well. Who knows? Yeah, perhaps. And, you know, some of the... Uh some of the features that that Tobias is looking to integrate are are quite quite unique in that you know he's looking at working on ways to estimate someone's time for a given route based on their watts per kilo and he's looking at uh, basically making the search functions that you use on his current Swift app uh, that that you can save those so that when you come into Swift Hub that they're automatically loaded for you and, and, and ready to go based on the world that happens to be in your son's with that day. And he's also looking to sort of implement a, a planning feature or, or a calendar so that you can you can plan your Zwift rides for a month in advance based on ticking off as many of these achievements as, as you can uh, in, in the quickest time possible. But again, it, you know, it comes back to that if I suppose, you know, he was working for Zwift, we could see all these things directly linked to Zwift or if he knew what was coming around the corner from Zwift he we could we might also see them on Zwift hub but he's kind of in a catch-22 at the moment that you know he's he's uh reluctant to put much more time into, into it and he's he's sort of at capacity himself as well considering that this isn't his full-time job this is basically a hobby for him and um, so as as exciting as it is and as well as it functions at the moment uh, you know there, there's very little on the Zwift Hub app that's that I would have thought you know it, it's it's severely lacking so it's it's not it's not that it doesn't function well at the moment it, I find it a very useful tool over the over the Christmas holidays there and you know I, I plan to continue using it while, while it's Zwift um, for as long as Zwift don't integrate it themselves I suppose. I find kind of the whole ecosystem of Zwift a bit strange like the fact that you need a separate app you need the companion app to sort of do almost any of the well like uh community functionality basically that's just a weird one to me there's, there's some there's some strange things about the development of swift for how big it is now how much money we know is behind it and yeah it makes you wonder whether they're working to fix some of these things or whether they've just sort of well the the you know that the user base is growing anyway, so maybe we don't really need to fix them. Yeah, it's a particularly frustrating one for me at the moment as well because I was having Wi-Fi dropout issues. So I invested in a Wi-Fi mesh system. And although that has made the actual gameplay of Zwift uh, not drop out anymore, which is good, it does mean that more often than not, now the companion app thinks it's on a different network than the laptop that is running Zwift so I can't actually get the companion app functionality to you know which, which is pretty crucial now in, in Zwift really if you want to get the full enjoyment out of, out of the system so yeah it's just so um, frustrating at times that it's not easier when really it, it, it could be. I mean it seems to me like a pretty classic kind of big company software development issue where you know they kind of have this path that they've set out for themselves from the get go, and they're kind of like on this path that they're that they're pretty deep on, and then you know someone small comes out with you know a, a solution to a kind of core or key or popular user interface problem that they either hadn't considered or you know just you know didn't really think was important. Um, but either way, I mean, you know, to, to, Tobias, if, if if you're listening to this, 
personally, I wouldn't invest a whole lot more time or money or effort into expanding Zwift Hub much more than it perhaps is right now, because I just have to imagine that Zwift at some point, Dave, like you said, is either going to pull a Strava and either shut it down or just integrate mm -hmm. it directly into Zwift and then yeah. it'll just be all over. Yeah. Womp womp. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess we will. Happy yeah. Well, I guess we will see what happens with Zwift Hub. Ronan, thanks so much for joining us for this week's Nerd Alert podcast. You all will be hearing and seeing much more Ronan moving forward. But in the meantime, Ronan, go to bed because it's late where you are. <laughs> Thank you. See you, Ronan. Bye, Ronan. Some event news. Uh, the Sea Otter Classic, typically held in Monterey, California in April, had already planned to move back slightly in 2021 to May. But it's now announced that it's actually moving yet again, this time all the way back to October. So Sea Otter is an outdoor show. It, you know, there are a bunch of races and you know just various uh, events that go along with that. But pr primarily, historically, it's been sort of the traditional early calendar trade show stop. And you know, yeah, from what I can tell, the typical weather in Monterey in early October is actually quite pleasant. So I think there won't be a whole lot of fear that the show won't go on. But weather aside, what's interesting from a tech perspective is that Sea Otter by moving from so early in the calendar to a lot later, now they're going to be a month after Eurobike. So how do we think this is going to impact the show as far as product introduction? This this is really interesting to me because uh, for, uh, the American trade show for the cycling industry used to be Interbike, which hasn't happened for a few years now. And that was kind of the time slot they used to have was, you know, a, a few weeks after Eurobike. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that I think this could be potentially a good thing for the american bicycle industry in that they'll once again have a trade show that's placed roughly in line with what the europeans are used to seeing with new product launches and it could work out well then again sea otter had also become a sort of early trade show when brands had product ready that they didn't want to wait six months for for Eurobike. so give and take but yeah i mean because it, it's weird because the, the the late calendar introductions of you know traditionally Eurobike and yeah like you said what used to be Interbike, I mean that's that's where those shows have always been, but you know those shows landed at those times in the calendar because of the way that the bike industry used to do business. I mean it was, you know you would show off these products very early. They wouldn't be available sort of intentionally, and they were introduced at that time frame so that dealers and, and distributors and whatnot could place orders so that they would have them in time for spring, for Northern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere spring, I guess I should point out. And, you know, Sea Otter used to serve that purpose by being a, a an April show in the sense that you could see these things, like and, and like you pointed out, Dave, I mean, these were typically companies that actually were showing product that was available for sale. So you could show off this product at a time when people are really getting excited about riding again in the early season, and then you could go out and buy the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what's unclear to me is that I, I don't know if this is a permanent move in the calendar that Sea Otter is going up for, or if this is just a one-year thing just due to COVID. Um, I mean, I love Sea Otter. I think as an event, it's one of my. It, it's it was always one of my favorite ones to cover. Um, you know, I, I hope they are able to figure out a way to continue on. Because uh, again, like I said, I think it's a great show. Um, but th the October timeframe just doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. And I really hope they go back to April. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing to consider is that 
the pandemic's not going to go away anytime soon. So, you know, traditionally, a lot of the American industry would travel over over the pond and, and attend Eurobike and, you know, do dealings there and see the new product there and, uh, you know, meet up with the brands direct or, you know, even have booths on display there. And I think realistically, this year uh, is still going to be impacted by that. And so perhaps, you know, Seattle will become more like Eurobike in this sense um, and take advantage of the fact that Americans are stuck at home um, and that, you know, people aren't as free to travel. So yeah, it could be interesting, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's unclear as to whether this is a permanent change or just a, a one year thing and, you know, whether this change will actually be a positive move as well remains to be seen. I think yeah, the real question everyone is asking is what's happening to Pond Beaver? Yep. Pond Beaver being yeah. uh, the, the cycling tips and pink bike version of uh, when everyone's <laughs> stuck at home, right? Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, yeah, so when Sea Otter was canceled last year, pink bike, and then ourselves, we sort of did this virtual trade show thing, right? And we could do that in spring anyway, I guess. We could still do that. I think pink bike is planning on doing so. But uh, October, Monterey sounds pretty good to me uh i feel like that slot is still i don't know i i was i was a bit bummed when interbike sort of fully went away even though it had its quirks but it's, i don't know it's still a nice a nice time to go and just see everybody in the industry and shake hands and you know you, we don't we don't run into a lot of these people on, on a super frequent basis a lot of emails go around a lot of phone phone tag and things like that it's just good to go shake hands every once in a while so well yeah, yeah i mean for, I, but from I'm our glad perspective there's an that's what tr- yeah, but from our perspective, that's what trade shows are, you know, one of the things that that's great about trade shows, but from a consumer or general mass market sort of thing, I, you know, like I was saying, I mean, having having the two, you know, now like two bigger trade shows both happening in September, October, I just don't really know how much sense that really makes. Like I said, I mean, if you, you know, you could do a really cool product introduction at these shows, which a lot of companies don't do very much any, anymore anyway. But if you were to show off this product in September, October, and you know most of the buying public in the Northern Hemisphere is you know in late fall, heading into winter, and kind of like you know winding down the season, mm-hmm. it, it just seems kind of silly. Like it's just you're you're building up all this hype for something that you're just not going to care about for months. I, I just don't think they had any option this year, though, right? Like if they wanted to have one, if they wanted to have a Sea Otter in 2021, it had to be after like July probably right because if you if you if you're just looking at vaccine timelines right you're you're not going to get big trade show with lots of people flying in in April where it would normally happen so uh, maybe it moves back 2022 maybe maybe we see like two sea otters in quick succession here because i i think that 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 space in the calendar does make more sense the original sort of april time slot but they just there's no option and and it's one of those businesses that really got hit super hard by the pandemic right mm. any anything that required people to get together so i'm not surprised that they will do almost anything to pull it off even if the timing isn't yeah. perfect and of course the other thing with sealed is that it's the trade show element is just a very small part of it i mean it's it's a mass participation cycling festival right so it's got all forms of racing disciplines and all that so um yeah, I think, you know, regardless of whether the industry is in on that timeline, I think their event goes ahead regardless because of, you know, the the consumer participation in it. Right, right. Well, either way, you know, crossing our fingers for Seattle, like I said, it is one of my favorite shows of the year. It really is a great event. Uh, like you said, Dave, like not just for the trade show, but for all the outdoor <laughs> events that they have. And yeah, fingers crossed that this actually goes off this year. Uh, and then we'll see what happens in 2022. 
Last bit of news, field test. Cycling tips field test number two, in fact. Dave, you brought a whole bunch of our Aussie staff to the Australian high country to test a fleet of bikes. And those reviews have already started posting to the site. They look fantastic. Uh, so I'd encourage everyone to go check them out, both on site and on YouTube. Dave, what else can we expect in the coming weeks? I haven't slept for like a month now. Um, we have more bike reviews, which I know, I know, surprise. Uh, so yeah, we've been posting up a whole bunch of reviews related to mid-level all-round race bikes. Um, and because of the pandemic, we couldn't go quite in... in uh, in as deep as we wanted to in that category, a lot of bikes were unavailable. Uh, so yeah, we've also got a, a bunch of other bikes. We've got a, a whole bunch of, I keep saying bunch. We've got a whole lot of gravel bikes and uh, I've got a cross country hardtail to review. I've got the Trek Demane uh, AL bike, which that review is coming probably in the week that this podcast posts. And then, yeah, there's we're only about halfway through the content, which is crazy. Lots more coming. Lots more coming. Well, Dave, I just want to say that I thank you personally for making my January a little bit easier. So my hat's off to you. My burnout thanks you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to our feature interview of the episode. So a couple of weeks before the holiday break, we teased on the main Cycling Tips podcast some findings from Belgian University professor and researcher Dr. Bert Blocken, who revealed some really pretty eye-opening data on the effects of race vehicles on, uh, as far as drafting is concerned. So there's also a written article on the site that I think you should check out if you haven't already. But the long and short of it is that race vehicles, such as motos and support cars, you know, they likely have a much bigger effect on riders in terms of aerodynamic drag than most of us would have assumed. So let's give a listen to the full interview with Dr. Blocken, and then we'll discuss on the other side. Bert, I first want to give our listeners just a little bit of background on why you and I are talking today. Um, so what exactly is your role at these two universities and what is your connection to cycling? Yeah, so actually I'm a, a building physicist, so I study um, yeah, airflow in and around buildings. But uh, apart from that, I also uh, we also focus on aerodynamics in sports and uh, mainly, cycling, mainly cycling aerodynamics. And that has actually started about 14 years ago. And gradually, uh, yeah, these activities have expanded to the extent that uh, yeah, we're now also running a, a wind tunnel at Eindhoven University of Technology, where we do quite some cycling testing and also work with uh, with two professional teams. And um, yeah, apart from that, we still also do um, yeah, general research projects in cycling, such as these uh, drafting projects that uh, I think we'll talk about later. So Bert, as part of this research into airflow around buildings, um, I guess you know you obviously don't run around cities with an, a, a meter measuring wind flow and like looking at everything. This is all computer simulation, right? This is uh, CFD. Well, actually, sometimes we do, uh, but that's rather occasional that we uh, install uh, wind speed measurement devices uh, in cities, also temperature sensors, uh, air pollution sensors, and so on. Um, but most of the time, it's CFD work, indeed, uh, computational fluid dynamics simulations on the computer of airflow in and around cities and sometimes also wind tunnel studies where we actually um, yeah, make a, a reduced scale model of part of a city and then actually study airflow in and around this model inside the wind tunnel. So conveniently this does make, I mean, well, surprisingly, I guess you wouldn't really think that airflow around buildings would be 
translatable to airflow and cycling, but it seems to translate quite well, does it? Yeah, actually it does, uh, because um, strictly um, a cyclist or a football or a building, and they're, they're all in the category of non-streamlined objects that are exposed to flows below the speed of sound. And, and in aerodynamics, that is actually a quite uh, well-defined category. Um, and, and there you see actually much of the same phenomena. So the misunderstandings that we uh, try to clear out sometimes in our studies in cycling um, sometimes are very similar to the misunderstandings that occur in building design. Um, and, and that's why actually there's quite a strong link between those two fields, even though at first sight you, you would think there's no correlation. So you've done quite a lot of CFD work in relation to cycling. Um, and I think none of that is really particularly surprising for a lot of people. Uh, I think if you know anyone who has tucked behind a car even briefly, I mean, that you can, you can certainly feel that huge difference. What I was a little bit more surprised about, however, is the difference that you see or the effects that you see when you're quite far behind a vehicle. I mean, one of the things that you talked about here, uh, you know, if you are you know, even 40 meters behind a, a race moto, I guess specifically the way you've modeled it, modeled it, it looks like it's maybe like a, like a camera moto where you have two passengers on it. Um, but according to, according to your study here, if you are even 40 meters behind one of those race motors, you're still saving about 10% as of aerodynamic drag. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. On the condition that um, you are perfectly behind this motorcycle and there's no crosswind. Because there is crosswind. When there is crosswind, the slipstream will also curve away behind this motorcycle. But on a, yeah, on a calm day, calm weather, um, yeah, this, uh, this slipstream is a very persistent thing and it, uh, it extends um, even further than 50 meters beyond a motorcycle or a car. And this is actually also something that is known from building aerodynamics that if you have a high-rise building in the city, um, you can find still effects of this high-rise building downstream for about uh, 15 to 20 times the height of this building, which, which is an enormous distance. And that's actually more or less the same that we, very similar actually to what we see in cycling. Oh, crazy. So um, another scenario is you you have um, yeah, about, I think, let's see here, about oh, over 19 meters behind uh, a car, you're saving about 13% of aerodynamic drag. Um, but I'm curious, if, is that for a relatively streamlined modern car or would that be, or what does that mimic sort of a, a race vehicle that has, you know, a roof rack full of cars and wheels and stuff? Yeah, um, we actually indeed based the, the car model on a typical team car, um, but we didn't put anything on the roof. So as soon as you put stuff on the roof, um, you see, you'll see that the percentage will slightly rise, but not that much because I'm uh, putting seven bicycles, for example, on a car roof. Is, is not that much blockage of air that you will generate. And while, while the car is a very large volume that uh, represents a very large uh, obstruction to the flow. Uh, so it will always help to put more stuff on the car. And um, uh, you will see if you look at drafting records that were done in the past, even in the 19th century, they're already starting also by drafting behind trains uh, with, with, uh, with bicycles and, and breaking speed records that way. And so it is something indeed that... Uh, yeah, that, that is, is well known. Um, but just to put these numbers to it is, is what actually was uh, yeah, the main reason for us to do. Okay. I think maybe even more surprising, however, and, and I would say for anyone listening to this who, who watches car racing, specifically NASCAR here in the US, um, another scenario that you tested is a rider in front of a moto or a team car. And I think a lot of people generally think about drafting as a situation where someone in front is blocking the wind for the benefit of someone behind. 
but there is some some positive effect if you are in front of a vehicle as well, right? Yes, indeed. And that's actually where um, yeah, we started these drafting studies back in 2012, um, knowing that um, and that comes actually out of the fluid flow equations. If you have an object that moves in cold weather, whether it's a cyclist or a car or whatever, this object is not only disturbing and influencing the flow downstream of it, but also upstream. So there is always an upstream effect below the speed of sound, um, but this effect is small, and that's why people generally um, do not think about this intuitively. Um, but it is true that if you uh, are riding a car behind a cyclist, this car is actually pushing the air in front of the car also partly uh, forward, and that creates actually some kind of overpressure bubble. Um, and when the cyclist is, of course, suffering drag by suction on the cyclist's back, um, and, and the suction area comes close to this overpressure bubble, what you get actually is that they partly merge and that the suction on the cyclist becomes less. So you're actually literally pushing the cyclist in the back. And, and people might wonder why is that? Because there's nothing between them, but, but there's actually air between them. You wouldn't have this in vacuum in space, but you do have it when there is a medium in between, whether it's air or water or other media um, that can actually transfer this, uh, yeah, this pressure field. Um, and that's what actually we, we started uh, trying to figure out what happens when you have two cyclists behind each other. And then it appears that the, the front cyclist can get uh, 2 to 2.5% drag reduction. Very small, of course, but, but it is there. Uh, with, the, with the motorcycle very close, it can go, um, I think, up to um, something like 8 to 9%. And with the car, very close, can go up to 13%. Of course, a motorcycle is, is free to move in the peloton, and that can be an issue. But the car needs to stay 10 meters behind, uh, for example, a time trial cyclist. But even when at 10 meters behind, there is a substantial aerodynamic uh, benefit that in some cases can be decisive. Um, and, and that's actually also why we, a long time ago, contacted the UCI to suggest them to change this 10 meter, well, first to enforce strictly the rules that they impose, because this 10 meter is not really strictly imposed. And you see plenty of uh, team cars in time trials riding three or five meters behind the rider. But also to change this 10 meters to, to 20 or 30 meters, so not, to not have this aerodynamic effect anymore. Um, but yeah, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't get a positive response on that, but we can't get any response on that. And that's a bit of pity, but anyway. Well, so these sorts of situations obviously happen all the time in modern professional road racing. You have a rider you know, drafting behind a, a TV moto, even just very briefly, or like you said, a team car that's maybe following just a little bit too closely, so on. I mean, there are vehicles all over the place in, in the race caravan. And, and based on all this information, I mean, it does seem more likely than not that race vehicles can potentially play some sort of role in affecting the outcome of these races. So, um, you know, I, I, I wish I could say I'm very surprised that the UCI didn't respond, but I mean, you know, Granted, there is the caveat that all of these simulations that you've done are, you know, in situations where a rider is situated, you know, perfectly behind or in front of this vehicle. There's no crosswind and that sort of thing. Um, but still, theoretically, there, there, there does clearly seem to be some kind of benefit. And even if it's less than a percent, I mean, there are plenty of races, you know, time trials, for example, where that less than a percent can, can, can make a difference. Um, so, based on your studies and your calculations, I mean. Do you think it is possible that the outcomes of some of these races could have been changed by these race vehicles just kind of mingling around the peloton like that? Um, yeah, yes, indeed, they they have. And, and what we actually did on purpose is not 
looking into races and trying to make calculations because it's very difficult to reproduce what happened on a single day. And we also don't want to, uh, to, to question, um, yeah, any, any rider's victory because sooner or later, every rider in the peloton has this benefit. And so it's not one above the other. Um, but for sure, yeah, these, these benefits are so large. Um, I have to also say that we didn't do only simulations and we also tested this in the wind tunnel always to make sure that we have a, a, a double uh, backup of what we are about to publish. Um, and in some cases, we also tested in the field. So, and, and you indeed always find very similar numbers. So these numbers indeed are there. And I think people inside the professional cycling peloton know very well. And a rider, of course, tries to position him or herself in the wake of a motorcycle. I think oh, I, would do, I would do exactly the same. But there have also been team managers um Last year, there was, I think, the latest clear example that uh, um, have expressed their, um, yeah, their disappointment, to say the least, in the media about some riders benefiting from slipstreams behind motorcycles and cars. And, and they have a point. And, and also riders have done that uh, on, mainly on social media, um, sometimes um, yeah, in, in strong, well, in rather harsh words, but they also have a point. Uh, the thing is, I think that, that you can't blame a single rider again, because, because yeah, sooner or later, um, every rider will, will have had that benefit. And again, I think every rider would also do the same and position himself in this slipstream, knowing how much they can gain there. I mean, I guess the other situation also is given that some of the effects, some of these effects can be seen at, you know, quite a reasonable distance. I and mean, there's only so much a rider can do to avoid that slipstream. True. Yeah, true. Um, last year when we, uh, came out with our study of drafting behind a motorcycle um, on the Dutch uh, national radio. They interviewed actually a motorcycle rider who was, uh, um, well, to say the least, not uh, very happy about our study. And he said, well, this is not true and this doesn't happen and we never ride in wind tunnels and reality is different. Um, and, and as a reaction to that, I searched, I think, for um, two hours and, and I found um, yeah, more than 100 photographs of motorcycles exactly in front of riders. Because sometimes also it's impossible to avoid. Eh? If you look at the, the Tour of Flanders, for example, or Paris-Roubaix, roads are so narrow that, that the motorcycle with the best of his or her intentions cannot avoid being in a straight line with the riders uh, uh, behind him or her. So it's also not, not never our intention to blame them. I mean, they also have a, a job to do and we also want to watch nice uh, images on TV uh, in our in our living rooms. Um, but but the effects are there. And and it's I think yeah, there's no use trying to deny that. Um, coming to solutions, of course, is much more difficult. Um, and there's many reasons, many good reasons why we have these motorcycles there. Um, people have been suggesting to, to work with uh, drones. Um, well, yeah, I think the, the UCI and, and the cycling world is maybe a bit conservative. Sometimes, well, not in terms of innovations related to um, everything cycling and beyond, but concerning legis legislation. Uh, so I think it, it will take a very, very long time before we see drones in the cycling peloton. I think uh, we first have to take care of, of safety first and foremost, after what we've seen in the past year, and, and then move towards this topic. I mean, given that something like drones realistically is not not a viable option for, for quite a while for a variety of different reasons, I mean, what do you foresee and what do you suggest uh, be changed in races either by the UCI or, or, or something, um, what sort of changes do you think should be implemented so that these effects can be minimized in a race? Yeah, I think some, some changes are very simple and that's what we think in 2015 sent uh, to the UCI. So first, we, before we published the article, we sent it to them 
And if the 10 meter of uh, team car riding behind uh, the rider in the time trial, if they just change this one to a three and it becomes 30 meter, the problem is solved. Uh, uh, so that, that should not be too difficult. Um, and in terms of cyclists drafting behind motorcycles, yeah, that I think is, is an issue indeed of quality of, of images or of cameras, but with the current technology and camera stability and correction and everything, uh, it should be possible to, to ride more than 30 meters in front of, uh, of a motorcycle. And there have also been incidents where you've had three to four motorcycles actually, well, consciously or not, I will not uh, pass any judgment here, but helping riders to bridge the gap between others in, in certain stages. And, and I think yeah, these are things where also the organization, the UCI should, especially the UCI, should interfere and, and not let this pass. Um, so I think on the one hand is, is um, yeah, being a bit more strict on their own rules than fine-tuning the rules. And changing the one to the three is not so difficult. Uh, it also has no effect at all um, on, um, on safety. Even it's, it's better for safety yeah, because the braking distance of a car on dry road is more than 10 meter. So in itself, I have no idea where this 10 meter comes from. Um, it actually yeah, makes, uh, makes little sense. And in terms of drafting behind the motorcycle, you can also enforce distances there. And now the, the rules are that um, when there is a, a break of a given time span, let's say one minute between um, one group of cyclists and the other, that a motorcycle can get in between. But the rule doesn't specify where this motorcycle can go and cannot go. So the motorcycle can strictly get very close in front of the riders. And even when it's just a few seconds, give, to give them a major benefit in, in bridging, bridging this gap, for example. Right, because sometimes just that benefit of a few seconds is all it takes for a, a breakaway to stick or for something to, to get caught uh, and so on. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's not a single solution. Um, just like I think in, in terms of uh, yeah, the, the bigger problem of safety, there's also not a single solution, but there's already many clear steps that could be taken. Well, I don't know what, if anything, will change as a result of this, at least in the short term. I mean, unfortunately, we are talking about the UCI here, <laughs> uh, but this certainly provides plenty of food for thought. So Dr. Block and Bert, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. So there's kind of a lot to unpack in that in that interview with with Dr. Blocken. Um, but, you know, essentially the things that he is talking about, this is all based on his CFD testing, was that riders get much more of an aerodynamic benefit from being behind a moto or vehicle uh, than previously thought, especially at much, much greater distances. I mean, there's still fairly, uh, fairly significant gains, even at like 20 meters. Um, you know, we've all seen in in races that a rider will catch a draft off of a moto and like, you know, sometimes those things are really, really obvious because they're right on their wheel uh, or, you know, right on the back of a support car as they're trying to like, you know, get back onto the, onto the main bunch, that sort of thing. But I mean, according to his study, you know, like I said, I mean, you, you're getting these benefits from quite a bit further behind the vehicles and you're also actually getting also a little bit of a benefit if you're right in front of a vehicle, um, you know, We've talked a lot in the past about how the UCI really should be spending a lot of time on you know, promoting rider safety, given a lot of the pretty horrific incidents that happened last season. Um, but ultimately, one of the main focuses of the UCI is to ensure fair competition. So if we take Dr. Blocken's findings at face value, do we think that there are any sort of, you know, are, are there any sort of like, you know, 
even technical solutions that the UCI can implement to sort of discourage this sort of thing from happening? Like, you know, can you put like proximity sensors on cars, which already exist anyway, but you know, like, the is there anything, is there anything that you think that the UCI can be doing to minimize this sort of thing? I mean, the, the, the most obvious is just re reduce the number of vehicles in bike race, right? Which has been kind of slowly increasing for decades. And there's a hell of a lot of vehicles just in and around the bike race. And given the fact that we now know that it, you can be 60 feet behind a car and still getting a draft benefit, there's no question that those vehicles have, have affected yeah. outcomes of bike races. Yeah. It's just... Uh, yeah, and that would solve so many, so many issues uh facing professional cycling at the moment you know where people are saying it's not eco-friendly and it's uh you know that number of uh vehicles in the races um also has significant safety issues so i mean there's there's not really any downside to this um if they if they were to do well, that well i mean the downside is that a lot of those vehicles and all those vehicles have jobs right like yeah there's there are some vehicles that tend to go well ahead of the race that are like vip cars mm. and stuff like that those are very rarely in and around the actual sure. peloton in fact they're not actually allowed to be yeah. it's mostly like broadcast motorcycles commissaires things like that uh photography uh photo motos and then you have all the team cars obviously but the team cars are generally behind the whatever group that they're with it would be difficult to pare down the number of vehicles. They would have to sort of fundamentally change the way that, that the race is broadcast and some other rules around it, but you could do it mm -hmm. for sure. And you could also just make rules that are like, you know, you have to be, you have to be farther away from the riders. There are rules like that at the moment. Uh, I don't have on hand exactly what the distances are. You know, you can, you can get chucked off a race for being too close, for example, but I haven't really ever heard of that happening with something like a broadcast motorcycle, which will often get exceptionally close to the riders. Yeah, yeah no, no real easy solution, I don't think, but it's clear that it's impacting the racing. On the other side of that, there's so many cars in and around the racing, you could almost make an argument that almost everybody's getting some kind of vehicle draft almost all the time. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the it's like the level playing field with doping arguments. Like, oh, well, it's just the sport, right? It's like built in. Yeah, the other thing I found kind of interesting, speaking of that, is, you know, given some of the massive energy savings that that Dr. Blocken is claiming in, in these things, it, it makes me wonder. I mean, a lot of times we saw in, in races, in big races this year, you know, riders that were using bikes that were, you know, ostensibly less aerodynamic or heavier or, you know, on paper should have been a technological hindrance compared to, you know, some other riders and teams that you know, presumably have supposedly, you know, cutting edge stuff. But I mean, if you can catch a, you know, a 20% draft, even, you know, momentarily off of a race vehicle, I mean, that moment could come at a very critical moment. And you know, I, it kind of makes me wonder, like, does that kind of wipe out some of those aerodynamic advantages some, somewhat? Like, you know, we saw a lot of riders who who still prefer to go for, you know, a lighter weight bike instead of an aero bike, for example, even though on paper that bike should be faster. But if you back out a little bit of the aero, does it make sense for some of those riders to still be going on a lighter weight bike? I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to see the math on that. My, my guess is no, <laughs> but... Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, no easy solutions to this one. Uh, it's just sort of inherent in the sport. And I feel like maybe that is the solution. It's like, it just happens. You know, there's lots of things that affect the, I, mean, 
I mean, you could you could you could start down that path and be like, well, every time there's bushes on the side of the road, the crosswinds and headwinds get diminished, and that affects the racing too, right? Lots of things from external to the peloton affect what happens in the peloton, and this is just another one of them, I think. Yeah, I mean, he, I'm not he, sure there's he a real does solution. point out he does point out very carefully that you know he does feel that for the most part, if you look at it over an extended time period, you know, most of the key riders will enjoy the same benefits as everyone else. Just like, you know, those opportunities will be presented across the board for the most part. But it just makes me wonder, like if someone's trying to initiate a breakaway or something and they manage to get up the front and then there is a photo, you know, a camera moto who is trying to get a really good shot and they're thinking they're far enough away, mm. but let's say they're 10 meters in front. And according to Dr. Blocken's data, that 10 meters gap is still providing a pretty good draft, especially when you've got a big moto with a driver and a videographer holding a big camera and like, you know, a big antenna and all this other stuff on there. You know, they're, they're punching a pretty decent sized hole in the air. And, you know, it certainly seems like that camera moto could be really helping that breakaway get away. So yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I just wonder if there are any sort of technological technological solutions that can be implemented to, you know, sort of increase that distance. And like I said, or like you said, Kelly, there are no easy solutions, but it just makes me wonder a lot. Broadcast with drones. I was actually thinking that, but yeah, that's uh, that's or fair ways yeah. away. You thought from disc brakes are dangerous. You can um, look the close up yeah, of the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you know. Replace the helicopter with a drone. It's like, I think stuff like that is, is coming in the next 10, 10, 15 years. If you think about how fast drone technology has improved over the last decade, yeah, it's totally feasible to get rid of some of these vehicles. And, mm, and, and put so many motorcycle drivers out of jobs. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Sorry, moto drivers. Yeah, well, I mean, you can replace some of these things with drones at least for a few minutes at a time anyway until the battery runs out. <laughs> yeah, technology. I have great faith. Technology. All right, it's time to close out our show with a few rounds of Ask a Mechanic, where we take your burning questions about bicycle repair, maintenance tools, and all things gear related. And hopefully we're able to come up with some sort of reasonable and ideally correct answer for you. Our first question from Robert Hest. He would like to know what is, or he would like to know what are our favorite tubeless tapes? And do we have any tricks for keeping tubeless tape from moving or breaking when removing tubeless tires? Or should he just resign himself to retaping rims almost every time after he removes a tire? I mean, I would say there are ta some tapes are better than others, just some are more flexible and not quite as brittle. But for the most part, yeah, if you're changing tires regularly, you're going to have to change the tape regularly. Like, because the bead fits so tight and you're pushing it on it and it just kind of shoves the tape out of the way and then it slowly starts to go go into the center and let seal into the valve hole. Zach, do you have a, a favorite brand of tubeless tape then? Uh, I, well, I, don't, I know it's available in the US. I don't know if it's available elsewhere. It's by Whiskey, which is just one of the main distributors house brands they just sell big shop rolls of it yeah um so i've got yeah, that it's a us only product um i quite like dt swiss tape which obviously is not made by dt swiss it's just has their logo printed on it but whatever that stuff is is actually i find that stuff pretty good as far as durability goes and um, yeah i have seen strange. the dt stuff like the the logo and the matte black stuff yeah like 
come off and it be clear tape underneath, which was really weird. I've seen that a number of times with the DT. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of clear tape. So, um, but yeah, there are there are most of these tapes come from one or two manufacturers like Tessa or 3M are generally manufacturing a lot of these tapes for the companies, and you can find those tapes uh, in massive quantities for not a lot of money. The issue is uh, often the cycling brands buy in large enough quantities that they can get custom widths made. Whereas normally when you're buying these rolls straight from um, straight from suppliers, it comes in like either 20, 25, or like even 50 mil widths. And normally you're, you're kind of stuck wanting something slightly yet different. So that's where yep. the bicycle tax comes in. Yeah, because that's, <laughs> that's another aspect that is kind of key to getting this right is, you know, I, you know, I know a lot of people are okay running a slightly narrower tape and then kind of just like doubling it up. Um, but I mean, that kind of just makes everything tighter and then it kind of seems to make the tape a little bit more likely to migrate. I prefer to get a tape that really does match the exact width that you're looking for dead on because that does seem to also help keep the stuff from migrating a little bit. So, so yeah, there are things that you can do, but yeah, for the most part, Robert, sorry, you, you're probably going to have to retape a lot. I, I will say as well, if you're if you're taking tires off and you're poking holes into the into the tubeless tape, it's probably a sign of maybe the tire lever or the way you're removing the tire. Um, so some tire levers sort of have like a more pointed edge, like Park Tool have their most popular tire lever, for example, has a more um, sharper edge to it than um, sharper point to it than say like a, a Pedro's plastic tire lever. So it might be worth looking at the tire levers you use. Get one with like a, a nice long flat edge to it. That might actually help. Yeah, but as a whole, tubeless tape and how that's how we seal off rims for tubeless on the road. That's one of my biggest complaints why I'm not a fan of <laughs> tubeless road. Team Tube Inside! Oh, I knew that was yeah. coming. <laughs> give, me, give me some Bellox cotton tape. <laughs> uh, speaking of tubeless, Ken, our next question comes from Ken Maynell. He would like to know how to unclog tubeless valve stems without removing the tire. And as sealant dries, is it okay to just keep adding more? I mean, so to un yeah, to unclog the valve without taking the tire off, I would obviously let all the air out and then take the valve core itself out of the stem and then get like a, a spoke or a small Allen wrench or something. You can just kind of shove it in the valve stem to clean it out. Um, a lot of times the actual, the valve core itself probably should get replaced unless you want to spend a lot of time trying to pick sealant off of it. Um, but yeah, and then in terms of it drying out, like. I would probably, if it was mine, I would just add sealant to it. But like, if you're doing a lot of descending and you have a big clump of dried sealant in there, that could throw off the weight. But mm. I mean, if you're riding a lot, the tire is probably going to get worn pretty quickly, anyways. That like, by the time the sealant's doing that, it's probably time for a new tire. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think for most people, you know, most people only have a small handful of bikes, or maybe just one. That's uh, you know, normal people just yeah, you know, they have to just buy bikes and spend a lot of money of course um but they you know a lot of those bikes if they're running them tubeless they're probably not sitting around for that long unless they've got sort of you know an off season long winter that sort of thing so if their sealant is drying up chances are better than not that it's not going to be just some huge clump but yeah i mean if it is a huge clump and you notice that the the, the wheel always settles pretty hard at one spot in the rotation then at that point you don't want to pop the tire off or pop one beat off the tire and remove that big clump. But otherwise, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely just add more sealant as needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just think of the dried sealant at the bottom as like extra, extra tire <laughs> to prevent my flats 
It's great. It's like a built-in Kishkor. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, um, related to this, I actually wrote about this with, um, uh, was it Israel Cycling, maybe? Um, using tubeless and tubeless sealant inside in the world tour and how um, there are a lot of teams apparently are actually using tubeless sealant inside of tubulars, at least according to... Um, this one team and uh yeah i sort of um hit up uh, orange seal um for some specific questions related to this and we sort of touched on things like additional weight of just topping up sealants and stuff like that and it's actually not as much as you think it is because most of the weight is in the the um the water or the carrier of the sealant which dries out and it just kind of leaves behind just a very lightweight latex or similar similar clogging uh clogging product so um yeah there's Basically, even at the world tour, they're they're just topping up sealant by the sounds of it. So it's it's not really such a such a big issue. This to just add more. I would I would add this is reminding me. If you're topping off sealant, make sure that you don't still have sealant in there. I've had a couple of people that regularly just like once a month add a bunch of sealant to their tire, and then had to change the tire, rim tape, or whatever for various <laughs> reasons. And literally, the entire tire was full of sealant like not not just a little bit along in the bottom but like if it, well full the entire way around eventually it gets amazing. to a point where you don't actually have to add any air because there is no air left to add. <laughs> exactly yeah so like don't just keep adding sealant when you don't necessarily need it <laughs> yes good point good point fair fair this point. reminds me of the old bike shop prank where you put your floor pump in a bucket and then you fill up, <laughs> yes. fill up your yep. colleague's tires <laughs> just with water yep yep <laughs> yep uh, yes all right, we are going to move on to Zach's favorite topic in the whole world. More tubeless? Chain waxing. Oh, yeah, chain waxing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because I think out of the four of us here, we definitely have some differing opinions on this. Jay Fink. Sorry, Jay, I don't know what your first name is. You just have it listed as Jay. Uh, they would like to know, are the waxed chains worth all the hype, and should they be putting one on their bike come spring? This is in Toronto. <laughs> Maybe. So, yes, we're going to have very different opinions on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, is, is is Jay Fink racing the Tour de France and or the Olympics this summer? Chances are no. Here's, no, a, not here's the thing. Not the so hype. I, I, I know that there is an efficiency case to be made for waxing chains. Like, we know, like Dave, you've written God knows how many thousands of words on this topic at this point. And we know without a doubt that a properly treat, properly treated immersion wax chain is more efficient than one that uses a more traditional lubricant, especially if you're still running the factory lube. That said, I would argue that for people who are listening to this, who will live in very dry climates, particularly ones who are mountain biking in very dry climates, I personally have found that waxed chains last a lot longer than ones using any kind of wet lube whatsoever. And they're lower maintenance long-term. That I mean, that's I, the yeah, main I, argument. I would I would argue, though, like because everyone's like, oh, wax chain it stays cleaner or whatever. The rest of your bike still gets dirty, so you have to get still wash the rest of your bike. And I feel like the type of person that cares enough that the wax chain keeps their drivetrain cleaner is already anal enough that they're washing their bike regularly, so it's not necessarily even that much cleaner. Maybe, but I guess for me, like I personally don't care. Like I mean, speaking of my mountain bikes, at least certainly. Well, hmm. actually, my road bikes too. I actually don't really care how dirty they are, like the frame and mm. bars yeah. and whatever. Like they can just be covered in just crap all over it. It yeah. just doesn't bother me. What does bother me is if there's a bunch of just 
grime and grit building up on the drivetrain such that everything's sort of just grinding itself into yeah, paste. Did I? So if yeah. for I feel me, like you're just changing one build up to the other instead of it being oil based lube build up, you have wax build up. But I guess that's the thing. If you do it properly, there is no wax build up. Yeah, but then you still have to add lube to it with like a a liquid drip wax no, lube, and you then you just you know if you have multiple chains on on um on cycle so if you wax two or three chains up front 99.9 percent of people are not going to have multiple chains well, in their cycle that is an absurd thing to say um, <laughs> like if, that's, this is my, my number one argument for the wax like if you want people to do it you have to make it super easy like you shouldn't need a crock pot you shouldn't need an ultrasonic cleaner you shouldn't need all of these things it should just be here's this wax lube in a bottle you put it on and that's it like yeah. if you want people to actually adopt and use it. So well, then they, that's what they, needs to they happen. They do have those. The, the issue is that you cannot- They don't work easily, as well. <laughs> the, the, the issue is you cannot very easily get a chain that, you know, a chain new in a box that has absolutely nothing on it mm. so that these wax, these drip on wax treatments work the way they're supposed to. So if you're only able to buy chains, mostly anyway, if you're mostly only able to buy chains that come you know, pre-packed with just tons and tons of this factory grease, then yeah, I mean none of the stuff that you use, no matter what what sort of drip lube, no matter what sort of drip lube you use, it's not going to work that great because you're going to be constantly working against the factory grease that's in there. Yeah. To go to go back to so the original what, yeah. question though, um, my opinion is slightly changing on this topic. Uh, I still strongly believe in Ooh. wax lubes, but I also believe that drip on wax lubes are getting so good these days that you don't have to go the melt on approach. I still very strongly believe in wax lubes for dry conditions um far far ahead of oil-based stuff um and because of the wax you what james was saying you still have to get the the chain strips of all the factory grease but there are some of these new lube products like um the silica drip on or the um ceramic speed ufo drip the new one um are amazing have used the silica silica one is terrible what i've used the silica i gave it a try as a wax hater, I was like, I'm going to give this new fancy drip on wax lube a go. And it was the silica stuff, and it was garbage. What didn't you like about it? It got A, it was super sticky, so it attracted more dirt okay. than my clean and oil lubed chain. And it lasted like maybe three hour long rides before my chain was making noise and dry again. Okay. Well, forget that. But yeah, the ceramic speed stuff I've had. The had ceramic speed stuff with. is great. Um, it's like, yeah, it's perfectly clean chain so like, for 200K yeah. of mountain biking use. Um, and then yeah. after that, it started to squeak. But 200K is pretty impressive. Yeah. Team lube in a bottle. Team lube in a bottle. Is that what we are? No, I'm not. Mm. Team lube in a bottle. Andy, we need more t-shirts. <laughs> We need more t-shirts. <laughs> All right, moving on. Moving on. We're going to stick on the we wax didn't, We didn't really resolve that, but okay, we'll move on. Well, no, we did not resolve that because there is no absolute firm definitive answer to this. I mean, it kind of just depends. I mean, I would say that there are pros and cons to using a proper wax thing and, you know, pros and cons to just doing a drip lube. So it kind of depends. I mean, he's in Toronto. Um, Chances are he's going to be seeing quite a bit of wet weather. So I guess I'll just say if you're riding a lot in wet weather, I would recommend against using an immersion wax treatment because it doesn't hold up great in wet weather. But if you're really trying to get things super clean and super efficient and you are okay with potentially a little bit of certainly more work up in the front end, then I still still like using waxes as long as you're not riding the wet. So it kind of depends. So you kind of just need to evaluate your situation, Jay. Just figure it out. Just dunk it in engine oil. Call yep. it good. 
Yes. Kaylee the mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Th- and then and then spray it with WD-40. Engine oil, uh, WD-40. Yes, yes. Ideally ideally with a big spray bottle, you know, really close to your disc, uh, disc brake rotors. That'd be great. Uh, Kevin <laughs> I can't Cook, go do any of that. Kevin Cook would like to know, he is clearly on the waxing bandwagon, but when waxing a chain, does he need to worry about the temperature or is it good as long as it's completely melted? Can the crock pot be too hot? Uh, I'm start just smoking Googling at some point. FAQ to chain waxing. <laughs> uh, please hold. It's just loading. Um, oh, it's on cycling tips. Look at that. Uh, and oh, then uh, <laughs> temperature. If this is a YouTube video, then it could be the click this link in my hand. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, you want it between 37 and 71 degrees. It's a big range. Celsius. 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 100 uh, to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Basically, it's a crock pot on, or a slow cooker on the low setting, essentially. Yes. So if, you're, if you don't want to wait, you know, I know you're tempted to just jack it up on high and then just walk away. Can I, but can I ask you a question? No. Do either of you no. have a you cannot laser, a point, laser pointer no. thermometer to make sure your wax in your crock pot is the perfect temperature? No. No, just oh, Kevin. Sad. Just put it. Just Dave's just put it. Dave is ordering order one, one right now. Right now, <laughs> I've got <Okay>. one. <laughs> I don't need it for my of wax. Of course you do. Though. Of course you do. <laughs> Kevin, basically the end of the, sto- the the moral of the story here is just put it on low and unfortunately just wait uh, because it. In addition to uh, you know what the recommended temperatures are, I mean some of these waxes and lubricants can degrade if they are really really hot. But in addition to that, we just ran a big segment on. PFAS chemicals on the last uh, episode of the weekly podcast. And depending on what sort of wax you're using, uh, you know, lubricants that are enhanced with Teflon generally don't have residual PFAS in them. However, if you get to some of the stuff too hot, the Teflon can start to outgas from what I understand, and it can start to break down and you don't really want to necessarily breathe in those fumes. So basically just keep it on low and leave it be. Or just you know hop onto the Team Lube in a Bottle bandwagon with Zach and Kaylee and just stick it on there and throw yeah. your crack. Just away. just further. Team, Lu- Team Lube in a Bottle not gonna kill you with with yeah. s- flaming chemicals unless it's triclo. <laughs> Almost. Ever. Um, but no, the just the official answer on that. So Adam Kieran does suggest that it's almost impossible to overheat the wax uh, in a slow cooker as long as you have the lid off. If you leave it on high, as James said, with the lid on and you forget about it, then it is possible that you can damage the paraffins and damage the wax. And you'll know that it's damaged if it goes like a more yellowy color than the regular like gray blackish color. So that's when you've overheated it. So yeah, there you go. Okay, last question related to chains and waxing. And then Zach, I swear we will we will never ever talk about this again. Oh, we can keep talking about it it's until fine. the next episode. Uh, Francis yeah. Paulin and Guy Perry would both like to know if we have recommendations for environmentally friendly degreasers that they can use to prep chains for waxing. And I would argue that you would need to prep chains for whatever lube you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Dave, mm. fire up the Google machine here. Perhaps there's something on cycling tips that's been written about degreasers here. There is. There's a best degreaser article, but I, it's not quite as in depth. Um, as I would have liked, uh, and it didn't answer all questions. And I say that as the author of the of the uh, of the piece, um, I am my biggest critic. And then, yeah. So these no, these me. days, James, you you use uh, what is it? Um, Simple Green Aerospace Grade. Yep. Is- Yep. So that's that's a really good one. Um, but you have to use the aerospace grade because the regular simple green can cause um, metal embrittle- embrittlement. Um, 
so uh, diesel avoid that uh even something like but yeah there there are a number of citrus based uh degreases hitting the market um ceramic speed themselves sell one which they themselves use to treat their chains prior to to wax processing uh so yeah just find yourself a nice eco-friendly degreaser and then what i'd say is whatever you use it's the best option is to flush it with a, an alcohol as or rinse with an alcohol just to ensure that there's no residue left before you do the wax. Can I just say that I enjoy that my role in this podcast is now heckling our own podcast? Uh, Kaylee, I would argue based on some of the comments that we've seen on Nerd Alert that your role has been heckling in general <laughs> since we've started Nerd Alert. <laughs> That's really all I have to add. So I'm just going to continue <laughs> sitting over here and heckling the podcast. All right. Moving on to more general interest questions on maintenance. Uh, Zach, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Uh, Simon oh, yeah. Refuse has a question. He has no access to outdoor running water or indoor bike storage in uh, a freezing and salty road climate. He's having a hard time keeping things moving smoothly. Go figure. And he's looking for some winter maintenance tips. What do you suggest? Like. He doesn't store his bike. He keeps it outside all the time, basically. He unfortunately has to keep his bike outside, and he rides his bike in a pretty crummy winter environment that has salt on the roads. Oil on everything. Just keep it lubed in, rolling. Or move your chair in your living room and keep it in your living room and wash <laughs> it in your shower. <laughs> I used to do that. Yeah, yeah I used to do that Every bike racer has ever done that. Yeah. Ever, always done that in a hotel. <laughs> or uh, many, yeah. Consider skiing. Yeah, or take yeah, take up a winter activity. <laughs> well, maybe it's a, com- a commuter yeah. or something like that. I mean, it might be. It might I mean, be yeah, a if it's a commuter, I mean, like inevitably, stuff's gonna rust. Cables are gonna seize, but like try and prevent that as much as possible by putting a layer of oil on all of the moving parts, basically. Oil or grease? Yeah, not wax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's bad. I was, I was asking as a que- that was a question. So, oh, like, yeah. do I mean, you want to grease the- stuff or oil? Like oil places? Where, what are we doing? I mean, I would say it depends what it is, right? But like. Like I mean, grease I've on even, cables? I've, yeah, it's like a light grease on cables. And I mean, if it's just a towny bike, just go to town. Like it doesn't, <laughs> and then like give just, it a proper bath in the springtime. Just dunk but, it in butter. Mm. I have heard of people, I think it was a motorcycle guys in the winter. They would take basically like TriFlow, which is a really light lube and just put that on a rag and basically wipe the entire everything down. Mm. And then it doesn't corrode and is rel- cleans relatively easy. Oh, it's a good idea. Which is a PFAS. But um, (laughs) no, Uh, what I would say is just on Kaylee's question just before is oil on exposed pieces and a waterproof grease on the elements you can't see. That's probably the the simple way to put it. Yeah, because basically what you're trying to do is just prevent a lot of damage. I mean, unfortunately, there's not really like, yes, you could technically go to like a like a, you know, a coin op car wash sort of thing and spray your bike off every now and then but then the problem is if you don't have somewhere to store it indoors you're just going to be mm-hmm. storing a wet bike outdoors and bike. it's just going to freeze <laughs> yeah. so yes it sounds like the sounds like the solution here for you unfortunately is going to be preventative maintenance until it starts to warm up and then you can start to wash it more regularly what if you moved somewhere warmer yes move your life so that your bike does not get frozen <laughs> yeah or it's a, it's a, hey i'm just saying it's a potential solution to this problem yeah. or like look Go move at yourself a, to san diego yeah or look at like a belt drive bike that's you know there's there are products out there that are better suited to conditions like that than having an exposed metal chain so 
Also true. Beltran's mm-hmm. sweet. True. Speaking of harsh weather maintenance, Guy Perry and several others, actually, they're interested in hearing our take on disc brake cleaning and preventative maintenance to keep them running as well as they can for as long as they can, especially in harsh winter conditions that have a lot of salt around. Uh, it seems like, you know, Guy is saying that uh, it seems like disc brakes have become so fit and forget in the last few years that it's easy for systems to develop unfixable problems like gouged pistons that don't show themselves until it's too late. What should I mean, you do here? Especially if you're talking about salt and stuff, I would regular washing for sure. Um, otherwise, you're just going to like everything's going to get rusted and corroded and like the backing pad, uh, backing of all the brake pads are all steel and that's like the rotors are steel, like all that's going to just rust if you don't wash it regularly. But I mean, in the winter, like inevitably stuff's going to get, get ruined if you're riding a lot in nasty conditions. Does letting the pads wear longer have a detrimental effect on like piston health? I mean, the I mean pistons, if the pads, if you're the wearing pistons the pistons are further out, right? Yeah. If you're wearing the pads down to basically the backing plate, then yeah, the pistons are going to be more exposed and therefore probably that seal is doing a lot more work. So maybe, or yeah, e- even if you don't wear them down that far, I mean, pads do unfortunately have a tendency to wear, uh, you know, not perfectly parallel to, to the face of the backing plate, especially if that disc caliper is not perfectly aligned to begin with. And then when that happens, then you start putting some off-axis torque on those on those pistons and the seals, and then you can start to have some problems. So that that's an issue as well. So more um, frequent pad replacement, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, otherwise, I would say like, how, oh, yeah. Zach, how do you gauge when it is time to replace the disc brake pad? When you're getting close to the little springy clip, I'd say. There's not like a. I guess some companies have measure it with caliper, but. Like most people aren't going to do that and you just kind of eyeball it. You're going to like out on a ride and you're like, my brakes don't feel great. And you look at them and you're like, well, your pads are gone. So basically like <laughs> there's a, in between the pads, there's a little metal spring to hold them apart. And if you wear, wear to that spring, then it's too late. So basically you want like just before you get to that. Yeah. There are, um, yeah, that's certainly the easiest way to do it just to get, you know, shine a torch in there and look basically but um both shimano and shram officially they do have um measured widths available which you can find on their respective yeah. websites and basically you need um to do that you you need to take the pads out of the caliper and use like a, a veneer caliper just to measure the pads um some yeah, brands same with the rotors yeah some brands you can give you the actual um material like the pad material measurement how much pad material you need to have left others uh include the backing plate and the measurement so you can just like measure the whole width of the thing thickness, i just want to point out before moving on to our last round of questions yes. here that in case people haven't figured it out yet dave rome has a fair bit of time on his hands one because he waxes all of his chains and optimizes everything not all not my mountain bike ones yet that's coming no um and then dave is also measuring all of his brake pads with vernier caliper so (laughs) i i just want to point that out all right moving on i mean there's no rebuttal to you there's no opportunity for rebuttal for you dave so i just want to just put that out there anyway we are going to finish this round of ask a mechanic with a couple of uh, I would say oddball questions here. Uh, Peter Pinkowski would like to know if someone really likes the aesthetics of fully internally rotted cables and is considering a custom steel bike, but also doesn't want the lines to go through the upper headset bearing. What are some options that he can look at for aftermarket stems? He apparently likes the way that Cannondale and Aurum have done their routing. 
I mean, if it's a like a custom steel bike, that's going to be, I mean, probably your only option is to use the FSA system, I would think. But even the FSA out. system puts the puts the lines through the upper headset bearing. That's the that's the thing that he's trying to right. avoid here. If I he's would... trying to avoid the upper headset bearing, then you're gonna have just have external cables. Yeah, just it's not like just the end of the world. Go. If you're on a steel bike, you're not that cared about performance. So, yeah. like, have six inches of exposed housing. Yeah, that that Orem system is is not something that can easily be done in a steel bike. It requires very, very uh, unique molding tools and all that to, to make that channel for the cables to go underneath the top headset bearing um, or top headset bearing same cup. With, same with I the think, Cannondale. Same with the Cannondale. I think, too, like you're so, going to... It depends on the builder. The builder is going to have to be really willing to do these kind of things. Yeah. But basically, like, you, let's say you get the head tube area figured out. Like, then you still have the small diameter tube and the bottom bracket and like getting all of that housing through the bottom bracket and leaving room for the spindle and everything yeah. and then to get it into the chainstay like you're gonna have to do a lot of work there that's yeah not or it's internal up front and then it goes exposed by the bottom bracket yeah to the trailer and brake but like right because even a lot of high-end steel frames that run fully or at least partially internal cable running a lot of times what they do is they'll they'll have a couple of ports down by the bottom bracket where the line basically just sort of makes a little external jog around the bottom bracket shell mm -hmm. to you know then go back into the chain stair or something. Yeah. Basically because there just isn't as much room inside of a steel tube as there is yeah. for like a big oversized carbon thing. So yeah. Peter, I mean I know you just say run, that you run really like tap to and have two brakes setup, but you might want to consider otherwise because it just might not be possible. Or if it is possible, I don't know how well it's going to work because yeah. it's going to be a full-on one-off setup and it's going to be more than likely done by someone who perhaps hasn't done it before. Yeah, just just further on this. So like the system like a Aurum, I'd, I'd imagine if you made it in a steel frame that you would have significant issues avoiding cable rub with the steerer tube of the fork. Um, so yeah, a more traditional path there. At the bottom bracket, something like the Ritter Phantom, which is a steel bike that I reviewed, that had a T47 shell, and that company went to a ton of effort to keep the cables inside of the bottom bracket shell. Uh, and because of that, there's this really big junction between the chainstays that isn't the prettiest thing, um, and they had to do that specifically to allow room to run the cables. So there are always going to be compromises if you if you want to keep those cables fully internal. Um, and there are bikes out there that you can use as examples of this to see if that's where you want to go. Last question. And, oh, I suspect that someone's going to have a field day with this or all of us, as a matter of fact, uh, Julian DB. Sorry, I don't have your last name, but Julian is trying to convert their disc brake bike to a rim brake bike. And oh, hell yeah, <laughs> Julian, Julian would like to know, Julian would like to know if it is safe to drill a hole in their for ground. sure. Oh, yeah. And Straight, also, I'm assuming this uh, is a road bike. Julian's bike does not have a brake bridge on the rear stays. You'd also like to know if they can drill holes in both of the stays, both of the seat stays, and then use a direct mount rear caliper. My piece of advice, rim brake bicycles are very cheap these days. <laughs> <laughs> I would just buy a new frame and fork. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV, and I would say don't. Maybe don't drill your fork with anything. In general, you could epoxy on some brake mounts, so yeah, that would, that would be way more legit Run than drilling knees. holes. No, yeah. no, that would not be legitimate at all. <laughs> no. Buy a used rim brake bike, call it good, or yep. just run your discs. Yeah, why do you want to give it a disc? Discs are sweet. I think I know. Brakes are sweet too. Is it Julian? Yeah. Julian, yes. I think Julian's taking the piss is is my uh, <laughs> is my suggestion. 
So. Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> Which, that, that thought had occurred to me as well. But it did get me wondering, like, what would actually be involved with doing that? Like, okay, drilling a hole in the foreground no. would be a terrible idea. I mean, you could just replace uh, the fork and have a somebody weld on a, a brake bridge on the rear. Yes. If it's a metal bike. So essentially, technically, this probably could be done by someone with some rather masterful fabricating skills. But Julian, no, just now. Do it. <laughs> do it send us a photo <laughs> yeah. we want to see this Kaylee the, as, as someone that previously owned a bike that had both rim brake and disc brake tabs I did yeah right. only and, one and, of those ever got and, used and just and just so you Julian just, just in case you are asking seriously and in case you actually do do this and then of course it invariably fails and you hurt yourself significantly uh, Kaylee's spelling just so you have it right in the legal documents is C-A-L-E-Y <laughs> Last name is spelled F R E T Z. Uh, if you need contact information to deliver papers, <laughs> I can provide it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't say drill the stuff. I, he needs. If he figures out a way to do this safely, I mean, I feel like if he has like a drill press, so he's doing it more accurate rather than just a hand drill. Just put like, a new <laughs> fork on it. Put a put a. How much is a carbon rim brake fork these days? You probably get one on eBay for like twenty seven dollars. Go buy one yeah, of those. Rim brake stuff is cheap. Yeah, and then. If it's a metal frame, then weld on a brake bridge and, and stick. If it's a carbon frame, send it to a carbon repair exactly. place and have them. Build That's it what up. I was gonna say. If it's a carbon, you could just get it, basically fancy epoxyed on there. It'll be great. Uh, Some JB weld. Send us a photo. <laughs> yep, I know you can't see Being this trolled. right now, people listening, but Dave is clearly showing a Dave expression of strong, strong. What kind of drill bit could we use here? <laughs> All right, uh, Dave is over we there are... nervously, nervously measuring his his brake pads with vernier calibers. Yep. So that's what he's doing. All right, well that will wrap up our first Nerd Alert podcast of 2021. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the Nerd Alert podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us a comment. Better yet, tell your friends about Nerd Alert so that they can listen too. And in case we haven't mentioned it yet, which actually I don't think we have, please consider joining our Vela Club membership program because Vela Club is really what makes all of this possible because maybe if you haven't noticed, we aren't doing sponsors very much anymore on Nerd Alert and that's partially by design, but it's partially because Vela Club members help make this happen. So please consider joining. Thank you. Thank you. Buy some Vernia calipers so you can measure your brake pads. Don't do it. <laughs> No, no, no. Team Dave, I can't. Team Dave, I can't. Bottle. Most people, most people don't know how to take the brake pads out of their brake. <laughs> Dave, I can't wait until you have kids. Some, someday you're going to have kids, and all of this faffing time that you have is just going to go away, and your head's going to explode. Then you can like use your calipers to measure their cute little toes and things like that. Oh my! All right. Anyway, we will see you all in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.